0: Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business.
1: Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, everybody. This is Joe Lynch, and welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. Today's topic is... Year 2025, The Future of the 3PL Industry with Andrew Kelly. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Joe. Happy to join you again and look forward to the conversation. Yes. So Andrew is very much the industry expert. He really knows his stuff. He's one of those dual threat guys who really understands kind of the strategic look at our industry, the 3PL space, and he really understands the technology. So thrilled to get your two cents on this, Andrew. Happy to do it. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to, and then we'll jump into the questions.
2: Sure. So I spend all of my time in supply chain and logistics software, you know, focusing on the lower middle market, which to me is typically companies of, you know, 10 to 40 million in revenue, give or take. But I spend a lot of time talking to founders and CEOs and chairmen of companies all across the country. And, you know, some of them are smaller and are startups, and some of them have, you know, tens of millions of dollars of EBITDA or, or, or highly profitable. But as a result, I see a lot of different companies, a lot of different teams, a lot of different technologies. And so it helps keep me current and in the know on what's evolving and what customers seem to be worried to versus what customers really aren't buying.
1: Yeah. Andrew, all I know is when I talk to you, there's a whole bunch of things I say, what is that? Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try to demystify as much as possible. Yeah, yeah and you do a good job of it. So. Tell me, what will the 3PL industry look like in 2025, five years from now?
2: Sure. So, there are some tremendous things that 3PLs have done, are doing, and will do for the supply chain and logistics industry. And, you know, the 3PL or third party logistics market, I think in 2025 will probably be leaner and neater as a necessity because, you know, one of the things that's happening is the older model of sort of a boiler room approach of a lot of folks smiling and dialing. I think what's happening in part of this is just a slow creeping evolution of technology as CRM systems get better, right? As the ability to track what customers are responding to either on a website or in an email or in some other context, those things are just going to make brokers more efficient and help them focus more on, you know, the customer service, the specialization, the pricing, the exception handling, and all those little things that make the industry move closer to the ideal of no touch freight. And so I think that technology is going to make brokers, you know, far more efficient. And thinking about the industry kind of structured as a pyramid shape, the larger ones on top will probably benefit more because they've got the potential to you know hire in a CIO or a CTO and have developers on staff to take better advantage of the data that they have. The smaller ones or the ones that are, you know, five, 10, you know, 50 person broker shops, you know, they may struggle in order to provide uh, either data visualization or, you know, better exception handling via SMS or text or the other kinds of bells and whistles that may make it easier for customers to you know truly manage their global operations. But, you know, ultimately it's, this is largely a relationship business and not all of it can be automated. And so, you know, the parts around those relationships that can be automated technology is going to make those pieces more efficient. And in 2025, I, I expect, You know, more consolidation, I expect technology to play a much larger role. And I expect that the folks that are taking advantage of consolidation and technology are going to be in a better position in 2025 than they are today.
1: Yeah. Andrew, you mentioned a few different things there. And one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, the sophistication growing in terms of sales. And I see that a lot with the larger companies really knowing how to use the web, doing digital marketing. And the guys, you know, in the middle and in the bottom, still very focused on smiling and dialing, as you called it, and and being real hustlers, which I'm not saying that in a negative, I'm saying it in a, it's just a market necessity. And I see maybe moving that hustle from the sales to more of the relationship management because you're able to, you know, connect with more of the right people. So tell me, Andrew, let's start at the top. You mentioned, you know, some of the bigger players being able to take advantage of some of these trends what will the top look like? I know you know who some of the big players are now. You don't have to necessarily mention names, but you could mention the types of companies you think will be at the top.
2: Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy to mention names. I'm not really conflicted in in any way, and it's also you know public knowledge. There are folks like um, you know logistics management and Armstrong and Associates and others that categorize and rate and rank freight brokerage and three PL and logistics service provider companies. And so I think people generally know who those lists are or how to find those lists and who's on them. I think you know domestically, you know Ch Robinson and J.B. Hunt and UPS and FedEx are doing kind of a, you know, a decent job, you know, a a non-traditional 3PL is Amazon, who is both a customer and a competitor. So there's a bit of a coopetition relationship between them and some of the other domestic 3PLs. And then kind of, you know, more internationally, uh, you know, DHL, Kudinagel, D.B. Schenker are some of the names that I'm hearing are, you know, uh, good partners for some of the folks that I talk to domestically. You know, I spend all my time really in the U.S. and Canada. So not a lot outside of North America. But, you know, freight is global. Logistics is global. And so, you know, the the global 50 or the global 500 companies that have uh, needs beyond North America are, are looking for solutions that, you know, expand beyond, you know, our, certainly our, beyond our borders here in, in the U.S. And so, you know, just thinking about, you know, the fact that the industry is so fragmented, right? And none of the players that I mentioned have more than a 1% share. Right, and part of that is because you know some freight is hyper local, right? So I think you know lane to lane, right? Some modes of transportation are relatively you know locked up by po- folks that have been you know running those lanes or the endpoints, whether they're warehouses or distribution centers or terminals, you know, at the clusters around the endpoints or the the beginning points of those lanes, they've had those relationships and those assets for for a long time, and so it's you know it's 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 hard to break into some of that business if you're an up and comer, you know, to the point about uh, hustling. Absolutely. You know, hustling is I think mandatory for everyone in this space. And I think a twist on that is, you know, it's, it's a little bit about working smart versus working hard and utilizing all the tools and relationships and systems around you to work as smart and as efficiently as possible.
1: Yeah. Andrew, if I could add something, we've all been using tms for the last 10 years and what that's allowed us to do is a lot of times through portals and other tools we've been able to put our customers to use those portals and as a result we don't necessarily have to be booking the freight you know for them so we can focus a little more on the strategic you know giving them scorecards having more phone conversations about how's it going as opposed to you know, just booking shipments so i think we've already seen technology help us be less of uh, sales hustle and more of a relationship and management hustle. Absolutely. So do you see any of those tech names that you, you know, that we all hear so much about like Uber and uh, convoy. Do you see any of those players being at the top of the heap in 2025 or, or climbing close to the top of the heap?
2: So how I think about new market entrance in this space is there is There there are sort of two ways to skin a cat in this business, right? There's a technology-first approach, and there's a domain-and-industry-knowledge-first approach, right? And so the new entrants are using technology and learning the domain versus incumbents that already understand the domain and are gradually embracing technology, right? And so in my humble opinion, it's never been easier to develop software, to develop technology than it is right now because there are so many tools and platforms to use from, even things like machine learning, You don't have to go from the first line of code and build your own machine when there is TensorFlow and there's IBM Bluemix and there are other kind of off-the-shelf modules that you can kind of co-opt and kind of bring into the picture. And the new entrants into this space understand that technology far better than the incumbents do because historically the incumbents, they're focused on providing good transportation or logistics service. That's their core business, right? Whereas the technologists are coming at this from a perspective of understanding all the different frameworks and modules and software languages and ways to deconstruct complicated problems independent of industry domain. And those that choose to focus on the supply chain logistics domain have the potential to create a call option on success. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all going to be successful because, you know, one of the challenges that we have is there's a glut of capital of all shapes and sizes in the private market from, you know, private equity to growth equity to venture capital. So kind of think, you know, multi-billion dollar buyouts down to, you know, $100,000 seed rounds for companies. And so there will be an overfunding of certain categories, you know, in this space. However, the efficiency that comes with these new technologies, whether they're successful in the supply chain and logistics domain, or they figure out how to pivot their business to either, you know, partner with some of the incumbents or resell or white label to some of the incumbents, or figure out their niche, as opposed to being a technology looking for a solution. I think there's certainly the opportunity for some of those folks that have been created in the last decade or so to be successful in this space. But my initial read in talking to many of the, the companies in this space is more domain expertise needs to be Inside of some of these startups, so that they really understand the the dynamics, the topology, the lay of the land in terms of supply chain logistics companies, whether it's shippers or BCOs or warehouses, or you know, the overall kind of flow of information and goods, you know, in the space, and that will help them write better technology, and it, they'll get better at that over time. And so, you know, I'm not ready to call it that. <laughs> you know, one of the startups that's you know come into existence in the last decade is going to be you know a top. 10, 3PL in 2025, because that's a pretty tall order, but anything is possible. And I think that there are a couple of firms that have embraced more of the domain-specific knowledge and are thinking about captive freight. They're thinking about shipper density and lane density in a way, just like an incumbent would, in order to be successful and profitable in parts of their business and and have the unit economics work out.
1: Yeah. Andrew, you mentioned being a technologist versus being a logistic supply chain guy. And, you know, having used all these TMS and talking to TMS companies over the last decade, it's always interesting when you start talking to the guy who, you know, owns the transportation management system, where he came from. Because sometimes they say, yep, yeah, we got this, this, and this. And you go, and you're always kind of trying to feel. Is that guy a technologist or is he a supply chain logistics guy? And there's a difference to your point. And I guess we'll have a merging of that over the next five years, too.
2: Yeah, I think the the best founders that I've seen in the space generally are the people that very humbly embrace what they don't know and find good partners, good board members, good co-founders, good VPs to come in and strengthen their greatest weakness. And with that mentality and that approach, like that kind of kind of mental makeup of a startup founder is and not just in supply chain logistics in general. Right. That's the makeup of a successful entrepreneur or founder or, or person who's got a shot at breaking down all the different things that can kill a startup. Right. Whether it's the market or competition or hiring or capitalization or pricing, you know, whatever the challenge may be, no one does it alone.
1: Exactly. So you mentioned earlier on we're going to have a much different looking, much different looking industry in 2025. And you mentioned briefly some trends. Tell us about some of the trends that you think are going to impact the industry over the next five years or so. Sure. So just you know, picking back up on technology, I think that's of
2: course a, a trend that we've seen as a result of a lot of the venture dollars that have been spent in and around the space. You know, the fact that you know a lot of the the industry just hasn't embraced technology historically. In pockets, there have been some innovations kind of here and there, but kind of across the board, there's a, a fair amount of inefficiency, whether that's, you know, uh, email-based or paper-based or kind of, you know, voice-based and, and not linking those different modes of communication together in an effective way, right? And and frankly, there are technologies that exist now that didn't exist, you know, five years ago that are going to get even better by 2025. Right, and so the evolution of technologies that will be increasingly impactful on the space—it's hard to predict, right? How uh, truly powerful machine learning can be in kind of you know helping uh, on multiple different dimensions. Everybody knows what's happening with chatbots, right? In terms of automating um, the the customer experience and making sure that somebody who's got an issue gets pivoted to the right person, and so you know that's got the potential to make people pound for pound more efficient and handle a larger volume of kind of inbound inquiries from customers or prospects. I think that, you know, there's a lot of discussion in and around blockchain. I'm not told that there's a use case for that. I think it's a better venture investment than a growth equity or private equity investment. From what I've seen, just given where our standards are, automation, right? So, you know, there are companies that are now doing successful runs in the U.S. that have been doing runs in China, you know, First, because the regulatory environment is a little bit less stringent there, and that allows them to do things on the road in traffic with fewer restrictions than here in the U.S. But potentially, you know, that's got the ability to take, you know, for very limited use cases by 2025, you know, think, you know, distribution center to distribution center in a relatively lowly populated area that's relatively flat with few exceptions that a vision system will need to handle, you know, so think, you know, animals or pedestrians or kind of, you know, other things that are atypical, you know, crossing the, the path of travel of a vehicle. I think that there are other aspects that are going to, you know, kind of work to consolidate the industry more, as I mentioned before, right? So as, as customers have more global needs, right, it's, it will be harder for them to justify in an RFP season why are they going to you know pick a, a certain you know transportation service provider or a certain 3PL if they if that firm can't you know service their global needs and so as uh, shippers move to have one throat to choke so to speak consolidation i think will be one of the ways that some of the kind of upper half of the 3PL industry will be able to to better compete have better coverage have better assets to kind of meet the demands of their shippers. And in addition to that, I think that one of the things that's happening, because it's it's just so impactful, is, of course, the migration from, you know, traditional retail to to e-commerce, right? So, you know, e-commerce is only about you know ten percent or so of, of retail, but, but growing at a double-digit clip. And you know Amazon's got fifty percent of that. Most of e-commerce happens in marketplaces, whether that's Amazon or you know, Jet.com, Walmart e-commerce, or eBay, or you know quickly you know uh, Target or the other big brands are getting into e-commerce. Well, in people's personal lives, kind of five to nine, people are being trained on the B 2 C side in terms of what to expect. And so nine to five in people's business lives, those expectations will creep into what they should expect from a customer support or visibility or kind of you know on time and undamaged or other dimension of service. And I think that's one of the things that uh, will drive folks to continue investing to make sure that they're trying to or that they're keeping up with you know, what's happening on the B2C side, because that's creeping into their, their B2B world. And so you know, those are a few of the trends that I see that are kind of glaring and obvious. And then uh, just taking a step back and thinking about why shippers or logistic service providers buy technologies in the first place, right? I, I think it comes down to, you know, a few of the common dimensions, right? It's, it's safety and security. It's customer support. It's uh, reputation and brand. It's you know pricing and ROI, and it's kind of you know breadth of technology solution. Again, that one throat to choke, right? So, you know, thinking about those dimensions and how they morph between now and twenty twenty five, I think draws almost draws the roadmap for a lot of the companies that are innovating in and around this space, whether they're startups or incumbents that are growing technology or something else.
1: Yeah, Andrew, you, you mentioned quite a bit there. A few thoughts I've had while you're talking about this is. You mentioned the marketplaces like Amazon, Jet, whatever that you might use, Walmart. One of the things I think that they've also done is they've informed the customers on their off time, that shippers on their off time that I ordered something from Amazon. It's on my porch in two days. So then you go to your office and you go, Why aren't I getting that level of support from my current 3PL? And so I think the the expectations raised because they learned hey, this is how elegant, this is how efficient it can become. And and I would also say the interface. When I go on to, you know, Amazon.com or Walmart or wherever I might shop online, and you see this customer experience is really top-notch, and then if you should go and say, and then I'm being told by my 3PL that I should go to something less elegant, there's a mismatch.
2: Yeah, and that's user experience, user interface, or UX UI. And so traditionally... From my, pers- my experience, I've seen the best UX, UI people focusing on mobile because you, you, a lot of e-commerce is getting done on, on mobile. A lot of supply chain logistics is getting done on on, on mobile these days because uh, people either need to be in the field or in a warehouse or someplace away from a desk or, you know, they're out at a meeting and they need to have some kind of mobile interface. And, you know, that mobile interface is getting increasingly better. And, and you know, web interfaces are getting better, too. Right. But the tools to figure out where people are clicking on an app, where people are clicking on a website have gotten a lot better. And that helps you understand the actual human behavior because, you know, coding something up from a user story that you think this is how this is going to use this software, or this is how a driver is going to use this software, or this is how a freight broker is going to use this software. But the reality is, right, how it's laid out on the screen and what people actually click on can be completely different things. And the ability to understand where people click and how to adapt or refactor a user interface so that it's more likely to be intuitive, you know, that's just the way of the world. And so the ability to have that front end be more human, more intuitive, you know, that's increased over time. And the folks that have less experience understanding how to you know, access those tools that help with that user experience, user interface are going to find themselves kind of in the predicament that you just laid out, right? Where here's how elegant elegant it could be. Here's what I'm working with. How do I close that gap?
1: Yeah. Uh, One other trend I think that I've seen over the last 10 years, and I imagine it's just going to continue, is the shippers, the supply chain people that we all sell to. They, at one time, didn't necessarily have to pick a 3PL based on the technology and the investment required now I think they look and say, I don't want to buy my own 3PL. I don't want to hire, I mean, sorry, TMS. I don't want to buy my own TMS. I don't want to integrate that to my ERP. I don't want to hire people to manage software internally. So I got to find a 3PL because they know all that already and they know how to manage it. I think that's a, a big change I've seen in the last 10 years. And I, to some extent, people didn't integrate 10 years ago, five years ago
2: because it was it was frankly it was a lot harder there was a lot more custom integration the the concept of restful apis or application programming interfaces was more nascent right or web services or microservices ways to stitch different software packages together it was just a lot harder like these days it's becoming increasingly common to stitch software together but still i think at the core of what The point you're making is the ability for a 3PL or a logistics service provider to
0: provide a fuller solution is a benefit to them in servicing their customer. We'll get right back to the podcast in just a moment. If you sell transportation or logistics services, the logistics of logistics can help you sell more. Our customized program will help you understand your sales personality, including your strengths and blind spots, get more sales leads, and improve your communication and salesmanship we can also position you as a recognized industry expert and help you reach your target audience
1: to learn more visit the logisticsoflogistics.com and now back to the show so shifting gears just a little bit you mentioned consolidation what drives this consolidation why should it happen
2: yeah so i think a lot of it is you know that one throat to choke concept you know so it's it's I think it's pretty simple for you know global customers that are looking for for more visibility or more coverage on more lanes or more warehouses or more capability or the ability to drop trailers or have trailers kind of dropped at warehouses at, at predetermined and scheduled times um, and, and having more coverage right so you know we talked I think a little bit last time about you know trailer pooling right uh, conceptually I think those are some of the things that are driving consolidation and I think it's. You know, that concept of providing a more wholesome overall service, right? I think that's really at the heart of what's driving, you know, some of the historical consolidation and what I expect to continue on a go forward basis. And let's be honest, right? This in some instances, this is a razor thin margin business. Now, on the less-than-truckload or the LTL side of things, there are some folks that have you know twenty percent margins or eighty percent operating ratios. You know that is fairly uncommon, and there are a lot of folks in this sector that work on you know, kind of mid-single-digit even margins or, or even less. And frankly, you know that's one of the challenges with some of the logistics service providers that may have customer concentration, and one big customer goes away, and then that logistic service provider has to declare bankruptcy very quickly. And we've seen that happen about once a quarter. You know over the course of the last
1: twelve months. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You mentioned this global economy that we live in. And I think of myself and I'm in my 50s now. When I started in automotive as an engineer when I was young, I'm in Detroit area and most of the suppliers were in the Detroit area. So if you're working with Ford Chrysler General Motors, you would get parts that came from Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, Minnesota. It was a Midwestern business. And and then slowly some of it moved south, but that was not a big deal. Now if you're working in Detroit and you're a supplier or a, or OEM, your parts are coming from China, from Mexico and and I think the expectation is that yeah, I will look at all those places to see if I can't get a better price, better quality, better better overall service. Plus if you're selling to all those markets, it makes sense that, look, why am I shipping parts to Detroit just so I can ship them back to uh, to Europe or China or Asia for sale? So it, it really does kind of speak to give me a global solution. Don't give me somebody who can just move trucks in the Detroit area like I needed a generation ago.
2: Yeah. And so, you know, there's the supply chain and then there's the demand chain, right? So on the demand chain, I think that where the overall market is, is headed is anticipating where the demand is going to be. And what that typically means is where inventory is going to be. And so the concept of massive warehouses with kind of thin spokes and kind of a hub and spoke model, I think, is is breaking down and smaller warehouses and distribution centers and places where you can have micro inventory, right? So I, you know, I I just read this morning that there's a big box retailer that is putting locker systems in their in their stores, right? And so that's partially for you know reverse logistics, but whether it's reverse logistics or being able to fulfill the promise of same day or next day delivery, that comes from efficient demand planning and understanding where inventory needs to be so that you're not having to ship it a an inordinate distance in order to um, have a, a good logistics services outcome. And that comes with kind of thinking about data holistically, both on the supply chain
1: side and on the
2: demand chain side.
1: Yep. So shifting gears just slightly, you mentioned some of the technologies that are out there. So what are some of the emerging technologies that will shape the future of supply chain logistics? Sure. So machine learning, for
2: sure. And so, you know, for folks that don't know, so machine learning is sort of kind of the operational category inside of the broader term of artificial intelligence. And so, you know, as I talk to, you know, data science and people that are, you know, coding inside of or coding uh, machine learning uh, models inside of supply chain, you know, very specific use cases that, that I've seen that make a lot of sense is you know training machines to look at invoices. And, you know, be able to read them and pick off different pieces of information, training machines to recognize, you know, big yellow iron that needs to you know, be serviced or, or needs to make sure that there's someone that can make sure it's approved to be in a particular area. that so think, you know, I kind of call before you dig. Right, and the, the other you know, chatbots I mentioned before, and in reverse logistics. I so think you know your mobile phones. Right, you you crack a screen, you drop it, you need to you know get the repair done. Right, there's all manners of ways that chatbots can be used, and you know in the context of the logistics space. Right, so. You know, so think check calls, think text, think uh, voice to text. Think about you know some of the relatively repetitive things that people do on a day to day basis that really doesn't have anything to do with pushing relationships forward that can be automated so people can spend more of their time strategically as opposed to doing a little bit more of the grunt work where you know a machine can be trained to do part of that. Of course, no machine ever gets better without a lot of data, and so. Having the data in the first place to train a machine to have, you know, a a high likelihood of kind of making the right recommendation is important. And that doesn't happen overnight. Right. But there is an incredible amount of data available today, more so than ever. And data has to sit somewhere. And the cost of storage today is just plummeting. Right. And so the ability to store lots and lots of data, whether it's structured or unstructured, it's really just never been easier, right? You know, some of the other things that are, I think, you know, growing more rapidly on the you know, the ground execution piece, of course, you know, video and voice, right? So whether that's you know road facing or driver facing cameras, or you know, lots of drivers kind of use Blue Parrot headsets, right? And so you know, their ability to you know be able to send via voice. You know that's for sure coming, and that hopefully automates a lot of the check calling that's done relatively manually here today. I think that one of the things that hopefully gets a little bit better is the ability to you know integrate different data systems and different uh, software packages. So you know we were talking about ERP and TMS, and you know maybe there's uh, you know telematic solution, maybe there are
1: other you know,
2: solutions that...
1: ELD would be great if we could get that information.
2: Yeah, right. And and of course, you know, the the ELD mandate and the the players that are the incumbents versus the the upstarts are, I think, doing a better job or will do a better job of either pushing and pulling information out of their system because, you know, everyone's got a role to play. And and mostly in in this space, there's just not one good end-to-end solution, right? And so... Different categories of software typically need to talk to each other so that, that information flows best so that the reporting, the visibility from a from a shipper or retailer or direct-to-consumer perspective is tighter, right? Is it's more meaningful. And you can again go back to focusing on the relationships, go back to focusing on the exception so you know your your time is used more efficiently. I think that that's really important. So those are, you know, just I think at the tip of the iceberg of some of the technologies that I think are going to be important or increasingly important between now and 2025. And then, you know, I'll go back to one of the things I mentioned earlier, which is, and there will be technologies that we are not aware of right now that will emerge out of different research labs and different innovation centers that I think will surprise us and hopefully in a a positive way and make supply chain logistics even more efficient.
1: Yeah. I just, uh, Finished a book on AI and or machine learning, and one of the things that uh, suggested was, you know, we now finally have the computing power and the access, to the data, and the access to it, or the connectivity to it, and we can finally kind of take full advantage of this. And they said, this is m- very much the application phase, and you know, once you start that application phase, to your point, Andrew, there will be other things that quickly become, you know, evident that we need or or want from that application uh, implementation. So one other thing I wanted to talk about, you touched earlier on some of these innovation or tech-based companies. Who do you think will be successful among the digital freight brokers?
2: Sure. So if we could just take a step back for just a second and just think about freight brokers, right? So I think freight brokers are successful because they provide, you know, kind of high-quality service. They kind of pick a lane. They kind of know what they know and know what they don't know, so they have a specialization. And so now putting the digital in it, I think that the focus is really maybe over-indexed on the digital piece. However, in the freight brokerage market, not 100% of it can be automated, right? There are certain relationship-driven tasks that can't be automated away, and that's probably a good thing. However, there are a lot of relatively manual and mundane things that can be automated. Now, with that in mind, right, I think that the freight brokers that are most successful are the ones that have lots and lots of shipper relationships. Right. And so and as everybody knows, you know, shippers pay and depending upon what kind of freight brokerage it is or kind of what the model is, you know, the the, the margin for the freight broker can be anywhere between kind of, you know, 5 percent to 30 percent. Right. Depending upon a whole host of different factors. Right. And so many of the digital freight brokers that I've seen are technology first companies that don't have any relationships with shippers. And that makes it really hard because. The capacity is there. So if you go to a truck stop, you talk to a truck driver and you ask them what they have on their phone, if you ask them what they would like, or if you ask them, you know, would they like the ability to, you know, get more visibility and pricing and, you know, the list goes on directly on their Android or iOS phone, of course, they're going to say yes, right? However, if you don't have loads for them or if a digital freight matching company doesn't have a load for them within, you pick it, 15, 30 minutes, 60 minutes. They're probably going to move on. They're going to look for something else. They're going to call back home if they've got some money, whether it's the wife, if they're owner-operator, or whether it's their dispatcher, you know, if they're working for a larger company, they're going to find a load to get out of Dodge or wherever they happen to be because they're just not going to want to stay at maybe the Lodge for an extra night, just hoping to get maybe an extra 50 cents on the load. They're going to take whatever they can get, right? And then thinking about shipper density, some of the folks that I think have shipper density to so Amazon, obviously. Amazon has a lot of captive freight right? JB Hunt. So their 360 solution. JB Hunt's been in this business for a long time. They have a lot of captive freight. You know, one of the other players that's kind of more emerging uh, next trucking in California, right? So I I think they've got like an export business in Asia pack that pushes freight to Long Beach and SeaTac, right? So they've got captive freight. And so in my simple mind, the folks that have the captive freight and the technology approach on kind of, you know, mobile have a better chance of success than the long list of, you know, 50 or 75 other digital freight brokers that have popped up that have a good technology, the user experience that, you know, the mobile app looks great. The website looks great. You know, if there was freight, then drivers and shippers could be finding each other, but they don't have that. And so, you know, over the, at least once a quarter, somebody calls me about, Hey, I've got this digital freight brokerage company. The technology is awesome. We've been running some freight through it. You know, we haven't been able to get as many shippers as we'd like. And so, you know, what's your advice on kind of what to do now? And my advice is yeah. typically, hey, the market is kind of telling you kind of the limitations of, of, of what you can get because otherwise you would have more freight on your system. And we know the space, right? So typically, you know, 80% of freight is RP, 20% of it is spot. And that spot freight is typically the freight that is priced lowest and is in the most undesirable location. And so is therefore the hardest to attach capacity to or match capacity to. And that spot freight is what a lot of the up-and-coming digital freight brokers without shipper relationships are going to be left fighting over. And that's a hard place to make money.
1: Oh, yeah. And you mentioned mobile apps. And, you know, we all have the smartphones. We all have these apps on the phone. And I got new perspective on that six months ago, a year ago. I heard Mark Cuban was talking about mobile apps. And maybe it was on that TV show he's on with the entrepreneurs. I forgot the name, but whatever it was. Shark Tank. Yeah, there you go. Shark Tank. My guilty pleasure. He said to somebody regarding a mobile app, he said, how many mobile apps do you use on a regular basis? He says, and what is the likelihood that you will download something onto your phone that will become, you know, a daily, weekly habit? Like, you know, maybe you have a Facebook app on there. Maybe you have Amazon, uh, maybe Audible. But to expand that into one more or two more, that's, you might download it, but I'm, I'd be curious to see what the, what is the uh, use rate over time. <laughs> you know, how many downloaded it versus how many are using it a year later? Yeah, so that speaks to
2: churn, right? So just because you create a mobile app doesn't mean anybody's going to find it, right? So there's marketing, there's promotion, there's potential word of mouth, there's all manner of ways to go and get the app out into the wild, right? So there's Google AdWords, there's Randall Riley in our space that it gives you the ability to do uh, mobile geo-targeting around a conference or an event or particular uh, states. Of course, there's, you know, old school email and listservs and things like constant contact and exact target. And there's, you know, kind of state trucking associations and there are ways to kind of give referral bonuses to people that kind of have their friends download the app. And so the app in and of itself has no value because what you need is a many to many network and creating that many to many network is the hard part because you need a lot of capacity and you need a lot of demand for that capacity relatively simultaneously. And let's say that you had, you know, a hundred thousand drivers in California, And all of your shipper freight was in New York, then that's the perfect market imbalance. And you're not going to be able to cross any loads.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, think of that mobile app. If uh, you say, let's just say you are a truck driver and you have that mobile app. How many times will you go on it if it doesn't provide you a load home? maybe
2: two or three, and then it gets uninstalled, right? <laughs> so the, so the term rate app retention is really important. And so App Annie is a, as a service that tracks kind of, you know, different mobile apps. And, you know, on the B2C side, you know, mobile app retention is horrendous right you know apps that people keep for more than 30 days 60 days 90 days right that churn rate escalates almost exponentially kind of out over time because even like wildly successful apps like thinking about b2c so think you know pokemon go or think about some of the other kind of gaming apps just because you know gaming apps are they're just more exciting than logistics apps right but even those apps that have you know tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of downloads is still face you know exponential churn as people eventually kind of move on to something else. Now, in the B2B space, there's a business imperative. And so it really comes down to, is your company enforcing the workflow on the particular app? Right. And so there in that situation, downloads is maybe not as meaningful a metric, because if the company says this is how you will interact with dispatchers or with shippers or whatever, that's a little bit different right, than what we experience in our consumer life.
1: Yep. Andrew, I'm going to hit you with a question that we didn't discuss offline. So you probably are way ahead of me, but I'll ask anyway. You mentioned Amazon a few times, and I just saw an article the other day that said that Amazon is starting to buy up these old malls. And I keep thinking I'm, I'm from Dearborn, Michigan, and we have a mall that was like Disneyland when it opened, but I was like 16 when it opened and now I'm in my 50s. So it's an old mall. And, you know, Amazon's taking a lot of that retail business and making it e-commerce. But now I understand that in many markets, Amazon is buying up these malls. And I think the reason they were doing it is, first off, they are enormous space. And obviously, Amazon has need for enormous space. They're close to the customers. Obviously, the mall operators didn't put them far from the customers. They are hooked up to the water, the electric, and they're all close to the expressways. And I thought, wow, I it's hard to believe, but I guess it's happening. Do you have any thoughts on that? I yeah. Have you have you heard about this? I have, in addition
2: to Amazon setting up uh, kind of pop-up tents. So I think it's it all goes back to inventory, right? So the ability to have inventory closer to urban centers and populations, whether it's a million square foot warehouse or it's, you know, a thousand square foot, you know, mall footprint, right? Or just, you know, a small a storefront where people can either pick up or return packages it's all about inventory, and getting that inventory as close as possible to people that are more likely to purchase it, right? So, you, you can imagine that. So, if you're a prime customer or the equivalent with another marketplace, and you're ordering the same kind of, i make it up, toothpaste, right? You know, every month or every two months, right? Well, there's no reason that you can't kind of demand plan for that. And yes, I don't know, maybe some people stop brushing their teeth, but that's not like that's not likely, right? So, the likelihood that people are going to need that same brand of toothpaste they've been ordering. Consistently for the last year, you can start demand planning and anticipating where, if you put inventory in that place, you would reduce the overall length of haul You get that toothpaste from point A to point B. And that reduces overall logistics costs. And so that's about uh, kind of territory planning or kind of demand planning at a macro level in order to be smarter about overall logistics spend.
1: Yeah. And I used to, um, Walmart didn't tell me this, and I don't have any inside knowledge over there, but. I've always thought that Walmart had a little bit of an advantage in that space because they do have their retail locations, and they're usually large, and I imagine they could carry inventory there to support that area, whatever area they might be in. And this all of a sudden gives Amazon the the ability to be right there with the inventory close to the consumer, really close to the consumer.
2: Makes perfect sense. Last I checked, I think maybe 10% of Walmart sales are e-commerce, and I'm sure that's that number is going to grow. And so, you know, whether it's clicks adopting brick strategies or bricks adopting click strategies, you know, th- there'll be kind of emerging of both of them because you need both in order to fulfill the promise of omni-channel retail, which is give customers the ability to buy wherever they want to buy whenever they want to buy it. And that is not always going to be online. That is not always going to be in store. And sometimes those guardrails will blur.
1: Yep. So shifting gears a little on you here. So we've talked about this technology. We've talked about the we've talked about the consolidation and we've kind of touched a little bit on the investors who are outside this industry who are kind of coming in and spending a lot. Why are there so many investors all of a sudden in the last decade interested in the logistics and supply chain space?
2: So, part of it is the fact that there's a tremendous amount of dry powder. So, Prequin is one of the alternative asset management uh, research firms, and they estimate that there's about a $2 trillion amount of dry powder globally. Now, of that, about a trillion dollars is in the US, and that's spread between venture capital, which I think is about a fifth of that money. And then there's growth equity and there's private equity. So, so venture capital, that's your typical, you know, C to series, some, you know, letter series uh, venture, you know, A, B, C, D, E, and up. And, you know, growth equity is typically, you know, buying less than 50% of a company to kind of put fuel on the fire. And then majority buyout like large you know, private equity firms. So think, uh, you know, KPR, KKR, TPG, Summit, you know, Vista Equity that have $10 billion plus funds doing majority buyouts right? And so with a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines, that capital looks for places to put money to work. And putting money to work in businesses that are relatively inefficient and have the potential to have material gains in efficiency over time, you know, that's a good place for capital to, to go to work, right? And so, you know, SoftBank's vision fund is, is more focused on earlier stage investments, kind of like Flexport, right? Inside venture partners, I see a lot in growth, equity, and sometimes buyout situations like Eto'op Open. And of course, you know, Vista Equity Partners, you know, made an investment in omnitracks And so these are examples of people that play kind of up and down the stage spectrum in terms of the maturity of companies in and around supply chain logistics. But I think fundamentally, there's a lot of dry powder out there. There's a lot of opportunity in making businesses more efficient. And when capital meets opportunity, there is the potential for investments that return lots of money. To the people that are providing that money in the first place, which are you know pension funds, whether it's firemen or teachers, you know insurance companies that uh, take their capital from premiums that they get from insurance policies, and they have to you know put that money somewhere to have it grow in the event of a potential payout or other folks that allocate a certain part of their overall portfolio to, you know, alternative assets, like venture capital growth equity and private equity. And so I think basically what we're seeing is folks taking advantage of the opportunity in a space that hasn't had a lot of investment in innovation. And in the last five years in particular, you know, that activity is really peaked up. Now, let me pause. I don't think every company that has been funded or financed or venture backed in this space is going to be successful. And in fact, part of the overall venture model is there's a portfolio theory effect where you're expecting that you're going to lose money on some of your investments. You're just going to make your money back on some of your investments, but you may have one out of 10. that's going to be just a complete moonshot hit, right? And if you do that math, you'll still end up making returns in excess of the long-term kind of public equity markets. And that's the role of venture capital. And so in venture, more so than any of those other stages that I mentioned, overfunding is designed into the overall process. It's not that venture capitalists go in expecting to lose money on any one investment. It's just that there is so much risk on market and team and product and customer adoption and operating plan that not everyone is going to navigate all those things successfully. And so not everything is going to be a billion dollar exit some companies are going
1: better. Yeah, Andrew, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, you're much more close to the uh, private equity and the venture capital guys than probably 99.9% of us. But every once in a while, I'll get probably once a month, I'll, I'll end up talking to an analyst or you know, and somebody representing investors. And sometimes they say, well, we just invested in this. Tell us, could you share with what, what you know? And what's interesting is, Every once in a while, it becomes clear that, God, they don't know too much at all about this. They're asking, what is a less than truckload? What 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 is what's truckload? What's small parcel? I'm thinking, oh, my God, you're investing in this with with very little knowledge. I'm thinking I would never invest my own money that way. It's not all the time, but occasionally it's it's clear that the uh, people I'm talking to don't know much about the space.
2: Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that's because people have to look at many investments to make one. And so to be an expert on all things is virtually impossible for any one human. Right. Yeah. And so I think what tends to happen is the accumulation of experiences over time tends to have people major in an industry and minor in other industries. And, you know, the person that's making the investment, maybe they got that referral from somebody who knew somebody and that's not their major. Right, but because they trust the person they got the referral from, and because they believe in the team and the the overall uh, addressable market, that may dictate them going forward with an investment, even though they don't know it nearly as well as their their major of kind of domain expertise, and so. Frankly, I spend a fair amount of time with both, you know, private equity firms and with consultants, just giving them kind of a supply chain and logistics one-on-one tutorial as they're thinking about either, you know, how to address a particular part of the market or is they're thinking about an investment opportunity or is they're thinking about, you know, what are the, you know, bolt-on acquisitions for a potential portfolio company that they've already invested in. And part of this is because they're so busy. And if they're sitting on five or more boards, then they maybe only have about 20 percent of their time for this one particular portfolio company in the supply chain of logistics. And so everything that they can do to kind of you know jumpstart their knowledge and short circuit their comprehension of what's important and what's not important in this space, you know, they'll do it. And so I think that the good news is most of the folks that I talk to are very humble about what they don't know. And the fact that they are reaching out to folks like us to get smarter on the space, I take that as a compliment.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I do, too. And I will say that what makes it you're right. They're always very humble. What's always also my belief is they're very sharp people. So it's always kind of surprising, like, wow, you know, you you guys are uh, making this investment and they are very hat in hand. Please share me share with me what you know. All right. So, Andrew, one of the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is most of us don't work for, you know, one of these high tech startups or even one of the large incumbent guys, one of the top 10 or 20 we work for, you know, small mid-sized companies. What would you recommend both the owners and then also the employees of companies like that? What would you recommend we do so we're prepared for 2025 so we can stay working?
2: <laughs> sure. So, you know, depending upon, you know, where where you're at, if you've got the ability to kind of stand up someone who's responsible for market intelligence, Right. Whether that's kind of, you know, getting the most relevant bits about what's happening with your competitors or innovation or investments or, you know, other kind of you know material changes in and around your sector. You know, that's goal. Right. So, you know, if you could do that with some RSS feeds or kind of with your own Twitter feeds, then that's okay. But it's it's probably better if your entire C-suite has a common view of what's happening from a market intelligence perspective. So that quarter to quarter, you have a better shot of, of. Being uniformly educated on what's happening around you so that you can decide to react or not, investigate or not, invest more in your business or not. Right. So I think being smart about what's happening around you will always serve you well.
1: Right. So. So what do you mean by market intelligence?
2: So, yes, specifically. So in many of the places I've worked for, you know, inside of maybe marketing or product management or, you know, sometimes even an executive assistant takes on the mantle of assembling. Here are the top 10 stories of the day or here is the most important news from the last week. Right. Or here is. The most relevant updates from the top three competitors in our space, you know, announcements in the last month, you know, whatever the cadence is that works for your company or whoever the person is who's best suited for that kind of role and has the capacity to take that on. And ideally, they're already doing something similar to that today. You know, that's what I mean by market intelligence. So so think of them as sort of your canary in the coal mine on things that are just adjacent to your core business that may impact you over time, right? Because what you don't want to be is sort of, you know, the proverbial frog in the cold pot of water that's on the stove, where, you know, over time you're cooked, you just don't feel it today, right? Because things can kind of creep up on you like over time. And if you don't have, whether it's, you know, salespeople reporting back or business development people reporting back, or, you know, others that are out in the field reporting back, and they're seeing these things, it's just, they have a day job. They don't have time to kind of filter all of that information back. Create a mechanism in order to understand what is happening around you and your company.
1: Yeah. Andrew, you mentioned market intelligence. You mentioned, you know, staying aware of what's going on adjacent to my market, adjacent to my customers. Some of those trends that what's driving the different the different changes in the market. One of the things that strikes me is there is a lot of information to be consumed. And in a lot of ways, it can get a little scary. I look and go, wow, look at all these tech startups. They're going to take over the industry any day now. And you know, we've just had a conversation, and you say, "Well, you know, someone will do okay, but don't look for them to, you know, take over the industry anytime soon." And I think it's it's not only having that market intelligence, but also being able to say, "Does this make sense? Is this real?" <laughs> you know? Right, because some of it isn't. <laughs>
2: that's, that's right, and that's why you, you sort of need someone who can be a filter because. If you try to consume all the information that's coming through freight waves or logistics management or CCJ or ATA or the Wall Street Journal, it's overwhelming, right? And so you kind of need somebody who has the filter of what's important for your company and those things that are you know just a step or two away from your company so that you can take that massive funnel of information as opposed to drinking from the fire hydrant. You know, you can get a meaningful
1: cup full at a time. Or you could just become friends with Andrew Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and save yourself a lot of time. <laughs> exactly. Andrew, this has been wonderful. This is, they have taken us through technology, through consolidation, what you think the industry is going to look like. And I, what I think is interesting about what you said is it, it seems well-reasoned in that, you know, there can be these, you know, some people say, oh, these tech startups are all going to fail. Uh, somebody else says the tech startups are going to take over. And you gave us kind of a well-reasoned what you think it'll really look like. And That's really helpful. And I think it's helpful for my audience. So thank you so much.
2: Happy to do it, Joe. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Any closing remarks? Have a fantastic Memorial Day weekend. Or (laughs) if, you know, this gets published after that, hopefully people are recovering and back in the swing of things. Having a fantastic
1: summer. And, you know, let's keep pushing and, and putting up the good fight in supply chain and logistics. (laughs) <laughs> thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I'm. I, we're, we're here in the Midwest. We're just hoping that we get to summer because it doesn't feel like we're getting there very fast. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Sure Again, thank you so much, Andrew. We'll talk to you soon. All right. bye, Joe. And thank you, everyone, for listening to my podcast.